Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, let's start tonight by looking not at Roman concrete, though that is my absolute current obsession, uh, but rather Maya plasters and mortars. We talk a lot about Roman buildings, but obviously there are other structures around the world that weren't just built with stone alone. So if you have giant blocks of stone and they stick together, that's pretty cool. And that makes a lot of sense. But when you have things like mortars and plasters that are more um, susceptible to degradation, when you find places where they've lasted for you know, thousands of years, that's pretty cool. And so, for instance, the pyramids of Egypt obviously didn't require mortar, but the Maya used plasters, mortars, and stuccos in their construction of their amazing versions of pyramids. And again, no relation. (laughs) A pyramid is just a really easy way to build a really tall building when all you have is things like stones and mortar and stucco uh, and plaster. Because until you invent things like uh, steel reinforcement or things like that, it's really hard to build a really tall structure that isn't uh, wider at the bottom than it is at the top. And so a team of researchers from the University of Granada in Spain have analyzed samples of Maya plasters from Honduras and have found that the Maya added plant extracts in order to improve performance. They've published their results in the journal Science Advances. Now, As a reminder, Roman concrete is a mix of semi-liquid mortar and aggregate that was made of fist-sized pieces of stone or brick, which is still wild to us since um, if you've ever seen, uh, you know, quickcrete or something like that, our concrete is extremely fine-grained. But the Romans made beautiful buildings that look exactly like modern concrete buildings using concrete with these giant pieces of aggregate in it. Um, Now, Maya lime plaster is similar to Roman concrete, according to Carlos Rodriguez Navarro and his colleagues. The use of lime plaster dates back to around 10,000 to 12,000 BC. Creating the mixture involves the calcination or heating to remove carbon of carbonate rocks like limestone to produce quicklime, which is then slaked to create Portlandite. Now, um, that cement that we use today is mostly called Portland cement. Uh, So (laughs) that is the basic ingredient in modern concrete, which is apparently becoming harder to find these days. I I went down a slightly fascinating uh, rabbit hole when looking through uh, this Uh, article about modern concrete and problems with that, but we can save that for another day. 
And so the Maya developed their process for creating quicklime around 1100 uh, BCE. And their formulas for plasters, mortars, and stuccos obviously have stood the test of time, despite the fact that they have been around in the tropical environment of Central America. And what's interesting is that when creating quicklime, a variety of cultures have added their own sort of flair or, you know, ingredients based on where they are. The researchers note that in the old world, plant extracts, sticky rice, fruit juices, oils, animal fats, and even blood or beer were often added to slaked lime to improve the properties of lime mortars and plasters. For instance, in his book, De Architectura, Vitruvius indicates that oil, oleo subacta, should be added to lime to make the lime mortar waterproof. Now, we have had historical and cultural evidence for the use of Maya, for the use of Maya, from the use of Maya masons. Uh, for instance, Bishop Diego de Landa, in his 16th century chronicle on the things of Yucatan, stated that the higher part of the Mayan building was a mortar roof, lime-washed and very strong, as it is currently made there with some sort of water coming from a tree bark. And so the researchers found that carbohydrates within the plasters and stuccos match the composition of sap in the bark from trees such as the chuckum or Harvadia albicans and the giote or chaka, which is Bursera semarabu. Samaruba, excuse me. The researchers were lucky enough to be able to consult modern Maya masons who have continued the tradition and found that adding the, seed, the tree sap improved the workability of the plaster when fresh and reduced drying cracks, allowing for a more compact set structure. So basically, it helps you apply it more easily and it actually is less likely to crack when it dries. Very important things when you're trying to do things like uh, create murals, for instance. So if you want to have a stucco, uh, if you want to have plaster under um, an understructure for a fresco, then it's really important that it doesn't start cracking when it dries, which of course there are extensive plaster murals at, um, or, um, frescoes at, uh, Maya sites. These properties alone don't account though for the durability of the finished product. And so the researchers looked at the chemical transformations that occur as the materials are produced. They then took samples from Copan in Honduras, as well as creating their own samples by using, again, indigenous knowledge to extract sap from trees in the area around Copan. The samples here come from between 
540 and 850 CE. So these are from the later period, but that's kind of because the Maya had this thing where they would actually build a temple and then build a better one over it and then build a better one over that. And I think that one of the um, places where they uh, took samples from was like the fifth building on the same site. And so you kind of have to go with the latest version uh, because of the way that my, the Maya people uh, constructed their buildings. And so they found that the addition of the biomaterial led to specific changes to the crystalline structure of the materials, similar to that in sea urchin spines and mollusk shells. And it also has a bit of a similarity to our uh, modern concrete. They further ran tests to show that the plasters with organic additives took longer to dissolve than those that were free of sap. They observed that the bark extracts are effective crystallization growth inhibitors, and thus, these organics profoundly affect the physical, chemical, and nanomechanical properties of the carbonate binder, rendering the plastic plaster more resistant to physical and chemical weathering. And so that is very cool to be able to see that they were able to figure out how to actually make this kind of plaster that would last long enough for us to be impressed by it. <laughs> and so the authors admit that some of the samples from Copan have signatures of volcanic tuff which is a big factor in making Roman concrete durable. But they ultimately uh, think that this property is unlikely to be the answer to why these are so durable, because, for instance, not all samples contained large amounts of tuff. And so there are, um, you know, tuff outcroppings in the area, but not all of the plasters had that. Apparently... By serendipity, or more likely by trial and error, the Maya masons formulated biomimetic lime plasters with superior properties and durability, the authors concluded. It is intriguing, however, that some studied ancient Copan plasters do not include organics, while others do. We can only hypothesize that for spe specific purposes, where a more elaborate plaster or finishing surface was required, organics were added by ancient Maya masons, for instance, in substrates for mural paintings, stucco masks, or floors, whereas in coarser plaster elements, no organics were added, likely to make the process less complex and or labor-intensive, which also makes a lot of sense. Uh, if you don't have to go out and harvest a bunch of sap from trees for, you know, basically a wall no one's going to see, um, I think it just makes it a lot easier. Um, so that makes total sense to me. And one of the things that, that they note, uh, they actually note a couple of things, which is that this work uh, sheds light not only on the particular plaster of the Maya, but also can give us new insight into uh, the plasters with additives in other places. So for instance, in China, 
where where they did in fact use sticky rice, which I think is really interesting. Um, <laughs> and so uh, presumably it was for very similar reasons, because one of the things that um, the sap bark has and sticky rice sticky rice have is carbohydrates. So the big thing that um, is kind of doing some of the chemical work here is uh, carbohydrate chains. And so anything that has uh, a high amount of carbohydrates in it will presumably do around the same kinds of work uh, chemically. And of course, in addition to this, knowing how to produce this kind of plaster can be important not only for heritage conservation, so, you know, repairing places that where the stucco is uh, lost, but is important structurally. You can now have a better idea of how to do it with original style stucco um, or mortar, but also it may have modern sustainable construction applications. Because again, <laughs> as I've mentioned, and as maybe we'll talk about in more depth at some other point, modern concrete is kind of terrible. Uh, it's kind of terrible in every single way. Uh, it is really carbon dioxide intensive and it also relies on uh fly ash, which comes from coal-fired coal electricity plants, which we are desperately trying to get rid of, but the industry hasn't considered the fact that they're going to run out of uh, <laughs> uh, coal ash at any point or cold fly. Um, and so fly ash, that's what I was trying to say. Um, sorry. Uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So yeah, we might talk about concrete again someday. Um, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it, but I just am. So I apologize if concrete is not your thing. <laughs> okay. So let us now turn to look at where the wood from the timber beams at Chaco Canyon may have come from, or frankly did come from, um, the science is pretty definitive at this point. Um, and so the ancestral Puebloans would have traveled to a pine forest where they would have used stone axes to hit rather than cut the base of trunks until the trees were ready to fall. Because you can't really, um, it's, you know, they didn't have metal in order to cut them down with like a metal axe. Um, so that was already labor intensive to begin with, to try and basically hit a tree until it was ready to fall over. They would then have started to dress the log by stripping bark and branches and starting to form it into a long straight timber. They ultimately harvested an astonishing 240,000 trees over the 300 years of occup occupancy at the site. And these weren't saplings. Roof beams averaged between 8 and 10 inches in diameter. They would have been 15 feet long, and so this would have led them to weigh several hundred pounds. 
The problem has always been that there seems to be no easy way for them to have obtained, frankly, any of these timbers. The area around Chaco Canyon is high desert. The ancestral Puebloan had no draft animals, no wheeled vehicles, and all of the navigable rivers were either too shallow or ran the wrong way to help the wood reach its destination. And so just how this civilization managed to organize such a thing remains an open question. We know most about these ancient people from the uh, what researchers and uh, National Park Service folk call great houses that they left behind. And so Pueblo Bonita and things like that. As many as 12 of them fill the area of Chaco Canyon. Now, they are mainly made of sandstone blocks and mud mortar, which were abundant in the San Juan Basin where they lived. But wood timber was decidedly not. While there are trees in the area, pinyon pine and juniper trees, these are not suitable for building as they tend to be multi-branched and often twisted. All of the trees suitable for the construction of their homes would have been found on mountaintops 50 or more miles away. And so the true hunt for the origin of the trees began back in the mid-1980s. In 1986, University of Arizona geoscientist Julio Bentancourt and colleagues examined 20 samples from Chetrokel, one of the great houses. Using microscopy, they determined that the trees were not only ponderosa pine and Douglas fir, which are the most common in the mountains, but also spruce and fir that were found only on isolated peaks 45 to 60 miles from the site. Now, the next study didn't come until 2001, when a team led by environmental scientist Nathan English of the University of Australia, who used strontium isotope analysis to map where the trees would have originated based on the unique signature of strontium ions in both timbers from the site as well as trees in the surrounding mountains. So basically, it's kind of like a fingerprinting system. Um, based on where the trees grow, there's a certain amount of strontium ions that are present in the soil there that then is incorporated into the trees. And so that team found that two-thirds of the spruce and fir trees came from the uh, Cheska Mountains to the west, and that the other third had come from, roughly, had come from San, the San Mateo Mountains and Mount Taylor to the southeast. Another more detailed analysis from 2005 by Amanda Reynolds, a geoscientist from the University of Arizona, and her colleagues found that there were also trees sourced from the La Plata and San Juan Mountains to the north and potentially Hosta Butte to the south. Now, the final analysis <laughs> so far 
came in 2015 when dendrochronologist Chris uh, Gritterman from the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Science at the University of Colorado and his team examined tree ring patterns from 170 timbers from seven great houses to show that around 70% of the timbers were indeed sourced in the Chuska Mountains, uh, especially after around 1020. And so all in all, the research shows that the ancestral Puebloans gathered timbers for their homes from several mountain ranges in modern-day Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. The total area was around 7,500 square miles. So that's basically, uh, it's actually larger than the area of Rhode Island and Connecticut combined. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a, of a, uh, large plot of <laughs> potential land to, uh, pull things from. And so remember, they did it all by hand. Um, well, more on that in a second, but definitely without pack animals, carts, or rivers. But again, um, you know, despite this, ancient people uh, were, I would say, almost a little less spoiled than we are. Uh, they were much more adapted to doing this sort of thing. Um, and so they were much more attuned with the land and much more willing to uh, move out into places that were far flung. And so it actually fits in perfectly with oral traditions and ancestral knowledge of how land was used again before the arrival of colonizing forces. And so the ancestral Puebloans had extensive trade routes and roads, and these were used uh, and were used to this sort of far-flung travel for nat natural resources. And so, unfortunately, despite the combination of scientific and indigenous cultural knowledge, which is really cool, there is still much that we don't know about how the process affected the surrounding land. Did they clear cut places? Did they only take certain amounts of wood from each spot in order to maintain the forest? We just don't know um, because, you know, what's growing there now are completely different trees than they would have been uh, when the ancestral Puebloans were um, doing this work. And we also don't know who exactly were the people tasked with the job of hauling the timbers back to their home. But we may now know how they did it. A group of researchers at Colorado University Boulder used tumplins or head straps to haul 130 pound wooden beams some 60 miles. Using the combined strength of the skull, neck, and spine, they were able to complete the trek with much more ease than trying to hoist the logs on their shoulders. It was just debilitating, recalls Roger Cram, 
an integrative physiologist at CU Boulder. It's just a dumb way to carry a heavy object. (laughs) Um, I just want to say, I don't know that they did it the whole 60 miles. I think that might be a typo. I'm sorry. Um, And so with the help of neurophysiologist Joseph Carzoli, Cram and uh, biochemist James Wilson began using tump lines instead. Uh, And that's T-U-M-P-L-I-N-E-S. Um, it's not something, it's not a word that I'm, was terribly familiar with. I knew what it, what the thing was, but I didn't know that name for it. So just in case you wanted to look more into it. And so using tump lines isn't just a hypothesis. There are ceramic effigies of ancestral Puebloans using tump lines to carry resources as well as yucca fiber wraps that may even be the remains of ancient tump lines. Sherpas in Nepal still use tump lines today. After months of practice, they were able to carry a 132-pound ponderosa pine up and down a hilly road at around 15 and a half miles a day, which isn't much slower than uh, they would have been able to walk had they been burden-free. And they said they were able to do it with, quote, Surprising comfort. Based on our test of concept, we concluded that this is entirely feasible, that Chacoans could have used tump lines to transport heavy timbers, the Rothers wrote. And they suggest that this may account for why the Chacoan roads are as wide as almost 30 feet. This would have allowed for heavy timbers to be carried horizontally, by a line of workers using tump lines. Verbal communication between subjects was critical for properly timing of the lifting and timber positioning movements, Cram and his colleagues write. Subjects learn quickly to walk in step to mitigate timber swaying and loss of control. They also carried T-shaped sticks to lean the timber again so that they could take breaks without constantly having to load and unload the tump lines. This idea, again, came from Sherpas in Nepal. And so based on their proof of concept, they think that transporting a timber from the mountains to Chaco Canyon would probably have taken around four days, including, you know, times to rest and eat and things like that. And so this could have been carried out either by a group that had permission to take timber from sacred mountain areas, or interestingly, it could in fact have been done by slave labor, as some of the oral traditions suggest. We lack definitive evidence that tump lines were actually used to transport timbers to Chaco, the scientists admit but we have demonstrated that this method would have been highly effective. And so uh, the next step is to actually complete the journey from one of the mountain sites to the Chaco Canyon site. Um, And so, yeah, apparently tump lines are really good and helpful. I mean, not that I didn't think that that was the way because I've seen many people in Africa and, you know, Sherpas. I actually uh, hadn't really thought about Sherpas. I've seen people in Africa who still use them. 
And um, so, yeah, uh, apparently if you ever need something really heavy uh, <laughs> to be moved and uh, you have a temp line lying around, um, obviously this is not uh, advice. Uh, you should not do anything like this unless you are uh, have been trained by someone who actually knows how to do this because it does involve your neck and your back and anything that affects your neck and back can be really, really terrible. So uh, do not try this at home uh, realistically. Okay, it is time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk about the history of horses in the Western United States. And so I hope you will enjoy listening to that when we return. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to talk about new research, uh, which is a collaboration between researchers and indigenous knowledge. And so this is a new paper that seeks to rewrite the history of the horse's reintroduction to the American West. More than 80 scientists and scholars, including experts from the Pueblo, Pawnee, Comanche, and Lakota Nations collaborated on the paper published in the journal Science. Now, interestingly, horses actually first evolved in the Americas around 4 million years ago, but they disappear from the fossil record around 10,000 years ago. And then the only horses that we have that are the ancestors of modern horses were in uh, the Eurasian steppe. 
And so um, that is where modern humans came to interact with the horse is introduction first from the Eurasian steppe. And so interestingly, archaeological finds from across the continent have shown that horses were important to ancient people of North America. The paper's main authors are archaeozoologist William Taylor of the University of Colorado Boulder and Lakota scientist Yvette Running Horse Collin, who is at the Global Institute for Traditional Sciences and is actually um, at the University of Toulouse in France. Taylor's focus is on ancient animal remains, while Colin researches ancient horse genomics and is an expert in indigenous oral traditions about horses. Now, while the horse was reintroduced to the continent by Spanish conquistadors, and that is not disputed, uh, it would have most likely been originally Cortez arriving in Mexico, indigenous people, uh, almost certainly spread them northward rather than having them arrive only when the Spanish got to these places a hundred or more years later. Now, they may have come not from those original horses that came with Cortez, but they may have come from settlements in the southwest. But what is certain is that by the mid-17th century, they were in the northern Rockies and the central Great Plains, areas the Spanish had yet to venture into. Now, I noted earlier, for instance, that the ancestral Puebloans had extensive trade routes, and we know for certain that they traded with the Maya, for instance, due to traces of cacao in pottery found at Chaco Canyon as well as the shape of the vessels in which that cacao was found. And we know that turquoise from New Mexico has been found at Chichen Itza, among other Mexican site, sites. They've also found, um, I think I talked about this a couple of years ago when it first happened, they've found ceremonial macaw feathers at Chaco Canyon. And of course, those come from the tropical rainforest. And so it's entirely possible that those trade routes had horses on them in later times once they had been reintroduced by the Spanish. We have always known and said that we came across horses before we came across the Spanish. Jimmy Arterberry, a paper co-author and a Comanche historian, told Christina Larson of AP, the researchers radiocarbon dated and analyzed the DNA from remains of more than two dozen horses found across the West. Now, the horses came from various collections, from Idaho to Kansas, and range from single bones to nearly complete horses, all of which, again, do show Iberian ancestry. So they definitely came via Spain. Three of the horses date to before the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, which is when historical texts usually place the reintroduction of the horse to the Western United States. But in fact, at least one of the horses dates to a hundred years before that event, 
And these were not stray wild horses. They showed the signs of having been kept by humans. One had dental damage and another bony growths on the skull, which indicate that they were wearing bridles. A third had a healed facial fracture, suggesting the potential of veterinary care. Analysis of their teeth found that they ate maize, which of course was cultivated by native people and uh, would have probably been provided to them in the winter months when there wasn't much grazing. Some of the earliest horses showed that they had been born and raised in the area where the Spanish would not arrive for decades, including a baby horse from Black's Fork, Wyoming, which is ancestral Comanche lands around 1650. This directly contradicts written records, including a 1724 reference that the Comanche only obtained horses through barter and that they had not yet been able to breed them. The authors note that had archaeologists been looking, there's actually a rich archaeological record of horse remains in the West linked to indigenous cultures. Some horses were buried in graves alongside other animals like coyotes, which indicates that they were part of ceremonial practices. The most important part of this study though, is the collaboration between researchers, both from sort of, sort of quote-unquote Western academia uh, and indigenous traditions. And so the erasure of indigenous history and knowledge is something that America and many other places, but we're focusing on America at the moment, uh, has a long way to go in order to heal. And it's only through collaboration with indigenous voices, uh, having a seat at the table that we can hope to build a truer picture of the history of this continent, especially before the Europeans arrived, um, and began doing their damage. I mean, it's just straight up damage and genocide and all of the other things that they did. Um, and it's just, it's terrible. Uh, so much physical patriot patrimony has been lost, for instance. Um, I shudder every time I think about the thousands, and I mean thousands of burial mounds and other earthen works created by Native people uh, in pre-Columbian times that were plowed under and looted by early settlers. I think of the writing of the Puritans who gushed about how the already cleared and cultivated land made available to them by God's providence, never understanding that the people who had cleared and cultivated that land had been wiped out by European diseases that spread along the very trade routes that we've talked about. And so this disease also came before Europeans. Um, a lot of times places were already decimated uh, by disease before Europeans got there. And so they just thought, oh, there's no one here. Hooray. It's our land now. Um, and so, yeah. And there's another really big thing to talk about here, which is that we have a terrible legacy of devaluing oral tradition over written tradition. But of course, we know that this is 
not a good thing. So for instance, Mongolian steppe cultures herded, rode, and raised horses for centuries prior to the first mention of this in written texts. Cultures that prize oral transmission of history should have a place at the table, especially when researchers are looking at their history and their lands. There is nothing inherently better about the written language. There's nothing inherently truer about the written language. You can lie or misremember just as easily in writing as in oral knowledge keeping. And so I think that's something that we really have to be careful about thinking about because we have this obsession with the written word. And, you know, I love reading. I love written words. But I think we forget that people in the past, many people even who did have writing systems, still had a much richer tradition of oration and recitation and knowledge uh, transmission via oral uh, stories and um, information. And so our, you know, obsession with the written word is again, kind of another version of colonialism. And it's um, it's one I don't think people think about as often because it's not as violent or obvious as some of the others. But um, I think of, for instance, Aboriginal Australians, there's a real big problem there with their an oral culture versus the Europeans who are a written culture and um, in a lot of other places as well. So it's just something to keep in mind. Okay, let us move away uh, and slightly north and we are going to talk about more evidence for why the Vikings abandoned Greenland in the 15th century. New research suggests that ice sheet growth may have led to local sea level rise, which would then have inundated much Norse farmland with basically salt water um, and also just put it underwater in general. And so we know from written versions of oral history that the Vikings first landed in Greenland around 985 when Eric the Red was exiled from Iceland. Uh, he was convicted of manslaughter and banished. And so he ended up in Iceland. I mean, sorry, in Greenland. And so eventually, uh, his uh, sort of followers and family formed the Esterbik or Eastern and Vesterbik or Western settlements. The Esterbik was abandoned in the mid 15th century and uh, the Vesterbik had already been abandoned in the 14th century. And so the last written record of the settlement is a wedding ceremony at Valzi Church in the Estrabic in the early 15th century, with archaeological evidence suggesting another half century of occupation. Again, the written word is not the end-all and be-all that we tend to think it is.
Now, of course, like in other places, the Europeans were not the first people to inhabit this land. Uh, we've actually recently talked about the Dorset culture, um, which occupied Greenland before the Vikings got there. And I don't think they had a lot of direct conflict, um, but there is some suggestion that uh, pressure from the Dorset might have been part of uh, the reason why they ended up leaving eventually, because it does seem to be a multifaceted thing. And so... As noted, there are many reasons that have been proposed for why the Vikings failed in Greenland after the early 15th century when they'd learned, when they'd had a thriving culture there for several hundred years. Climate change and economic shifts have been the main contenders, but this new theory suggests that sea level rise played a key role. Now, of course, it may have been all three together that ultimately led to the abandonment of the settlements. And so part of this is the little ice age that happened between the 14th and 19th centuries. And this would have meant that the Greenland ice sheet would have expanded. Marissa Julia Borigine, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard, first presented data on this hypothesis at an American Geophysical Union conference in New Orleans back in December 2021. While it may seem counterintuitive that expanding ice would lead to sea level rise, the researchers believed that the heaviness of the ice may have weighed down the island and thus made coastal areas more prone to flooding. In addition, increased gravitational attraction between expanding ice sheets and large masses of ice of sea ice would have pushed more seawater over the coast directly where the Vikings were living and farming, because, of course, we know that the interior of the island was covered in glaciers. So they were really only able to cling on to the outskirts of the island. And so the team modeled the estimated ice growth in southwestern Greenland over the 400-year period of Norse occupation, and then added the results to a model showing sea level rise during the same time. This was then overlaid with a map of known Viking sites to see how they would have been affected by the rising seas. They found that between 1000 and 1400, Viking settlements would have been flooded by as much as 11 feet of water, affecting some 78 square miles of coastal land, land being used by the Vikings for farming and grazing cattle. But again, it was probably a variety of factors that caused them to abandon their settlements on this remote and not terribly hospitable island. A combination of climate and environmental change, the shifting resource landscape, the flux of supply and demand of exclusive products for the foreign market, and interactions with Inuit in the north all could have contributed to this out-migration, she said. Likely a combination of these factors led to the Norse migration out of Greenland and further west. Because, of course, they ended up in Canada briefly uh, as well. <laughs> okay, finally, tonight, 
Sebastian Gouillet, an environmental scientist at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, was listening to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon one day when he had a realization, uh, a spark went off. He realized that the darkest lunar eclipses all occur within a year or so of a major volcanic eruption. And the thing about eclipses is that we can precisely date them, very precisely, down to the day, down to practically the minute. Um, If you really wanted to do the calculation, you probably could get it down to the minute. Um, And so that means that there was a possibility to tie medieval historical accounts of lunar eclipse viewing to large volcanic eruptions, helping geoscientists better understand their time frame, at least between uh, the sort of proof of concept was between the years of 1100 and 1300. And so the researchers combined medieval texts tree ring, and ice core data. Climate scientists usually identify past volcanic eruptions by measuring the acidity and amount of volcanic ash in cores drilled from polar ice, or by inferring abrupt temperature changes in tree ring records. Andrea Syme of the University of Friedberg and Eduardo Zurita wrote in an accompanying commentary. However, these sources sometimes disagree because the location, intensity, and timing of eruptions can produce varying results, as can circulation of the atmosphere. Guillet and colleagues' approach offers an independent and perhaps even more direct source of information about the timing of volcanic eruptions, which could resolve some of these disagreements. And so basically, major eruptions eject huge amounts of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere, which then gets converted into aerosols in the stratosphere, producing volcanic dust. This in turn blocks solar radiation and changes the Earth's surface temperature. It can also affect the precipitation and even atmospheric circulation. So um, if you have a really, really huge eruption, then basically cloud formation gets changed and atmospheric circulation gets changed. So you can end up having places that very rarely get rain, end up having basically monsoons and places that have monsoons being, you know, basically dry as a desert. Um... And uh, going back to earlier, major volcanic eruptions may even have been part of the reason for our friend, the Little Ice Age. But for this research, the important thing is that excess aerosols make the moon appear darker, while little aerosols allow for a bright reddish appearance. So depending on how the eclipse was described, by medieval astronomers, you can tell whether there had been a recent eruption. 
We only knew about these eruptions because they left traces in the ice of Antarctica and Greenland, said co-author Clive Oppenheimer of the University of Cambridge. By putting together the information from ice cores and the description from medieval texts, we can now make better estimates of when and where some of the biggest eruptions of this period occurred. Now, medieval monks and astronomers were very concerned about the color of eclipses due to the reference in the Book of Revelation relating to the blood-red moon, which would appear during the end times. But they weren't the only ones. Chinese and Korean astronomers were also very interested in the moon and wrote about it in astronomical treaties and official historic dynastic histories. The Arabs wrote about lunar eclipse in their chronicles. The Japanese wrote about them in the diaries of courtiers, in their chronicles, and in temple records. For instance, Japanese scribe Fujiwara no Teke, or sorry, Tieka, observed a dark lunar eclipse on December 2nd, 1229. Regarding the recent total lunar eclipse, Although on previous occasions there has been totality, the old folk had never seen it like this time, with the location of the disk of the moon not visible, just as if it had disappeared during the eclipse. Moreover, the duration was very long, and the change was extreme. It was truly something to fear. Indeed, in my 70 years, I have never heard of or seen such a thing. The official astronomer spoke of it fearfully. That seems pretty intense. So I bet there was a pretty big volcanic eruption uh, right before that. And in fact, of 64 total lunar eclipses, Uh, known to have happened uh, between 1100 and 1300, medieval chroniclers wrote about 51 of them. And in five of those cases, the moon was described as especially dark. One of these was in the mid-13th century and was on par with the 1815 Tambora eruption that caused the year 1816 to be referred to as the year without a summer. The authors found links to several dark lunar eclipses, including May 1110, January 1172, December 1229, May 1258, November 1258, and November 1276. And so, yeah, very interesting. And so they were able to correlate these with stratospheric dust originating in major volcanic eruptions based on polar ice data. Tree ring records, again, refined the timing even more. And while it's not always easy to see an eclipse, such research could help us with future climate models as we have a better understanding of the climate of the past. So that is pretty excellent. And um, I just think it's really cool that all of these stories were basically looking at 
uh, knowledge from the people themselves. Um, the Vikings, not so much, but all of these other ones, they're really looking at people who were there basically. And I think that that's really important. Um, I think it's really important for us to continue to work with um, Indigenous Americans, especially in America, uh, when we look at their history and to end the uh, colonization of their history, because uh, we obviously have been missing things due to our assumptions. And we really need to get over that. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for joining me on Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.